Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Gregory Moore and Cameron Ryder. Greg Moore is a research associate at Burnley College at the University of Melbourne. He also served as the principal of Burnley and the head of the School of Resource Management at the University of Melbourne. Cameron Ryder is a graduate of the University of Melbourne and is a senior consulting arborist for Homewood Consulting since 1906. This podcast features their talk on arboricultural and economic benefits of formative pruning. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. Well, good afternoon. I'm, I'm pleased to see so many have come. Um, really quite excited to be talking about this topic. Uh, formative pruning is something that I've been interested in for about 30 years. And my powers of persuasion were so fantastic that it took me a mere 20 years to get a student to, uh, to work on the topic. And, and the poor victim turned out to be Cameron. So I'm delighted to be here presenting with him today uh, the results of this research. Now, I want to begin with a bit of uh, what, what, what I think is uh, arboricultural philosophy. Haven't had too much of that in some ways. And I wanted to put up what we work to as the principles of, of modern arboriculture. And there are seven of them that I briefly want to, to cover with you. And I want to set this up as the framework because these principles are the things that have driven uh, our approach to formative pruning and why we consider it to be so important for our industry and for our trees. And the first principles here you can see is a modification of Hippocrates. Uh, it's a medical model. Um, do no harm. And uh, any arboricultural intervention uh, must not do harm to the tree. You, you should sort of be making a condition, a, a contribution to the condition of the tree so that the tree is better rather than worse in the medium to long term. Now that, that might be stating the obvious, but I've found that from time to time stating the bleedy ob bleedingly obvious is necessary. We, we don't do harm. And then I think we start to move into the, the very nub of, of arboriculture as I see it, that the sorts of things that have changed in the past 30 years. We recognise that trees are, uh, are living things and all of our practices have to be in accord with the, the biological principles that underpin living things. And so, for example, um, when I came to Burnley in 1979, I arrived there on uh, the 3rd of May in 1979 and I was asked to go out and participate in some practical classes early just to, to watch what was going on and so I did and to my horror flush cutting 
was being taught as part of an exercise. And I can remember saying to the, uh, the instructor at the time, there'll be no more of that, flush cuttings out. And rightly the guy said, well why, what basis have you got for saying no to flush cutting? And at the time I was as green as they come and I simply said, wound size. The wound size is too big, we're not going to flush cutting. And from the 1st of June of 1979, flush cutting disappeared entirely from the curriculum at Burnley based on an understanding of a simple biological principle. So when all else fails, you, 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 you go to the basics and then of course now we understand collars and branch bark ridges. I must say though, when you look at a branch bark ridge, um, isn't one of the joys of working with trees and interacting with the general public the fact that the things that you and I take for granted, they've never seen before. I give about 50 free public lectures a year and have done for the last 30 years. It's about 1,500. Average audience ranges from around 150 up to uh, a little bit more, maybe 200. Occasionally they're down to 12. Thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people. And you say to them, have you ever seen a collar and they don't know what you're talking about? And what about a branch bark ridge? Never heard of it. And then can you realise the change, the ones that are interested, the change that you've made to them? You've been an absolute so-and-so in some ways because they've wandered around looking at trees and they've never seen a branch bark ridge and now you've pointed it out and they'll never see the tree in the same way again. Every branch has a branch bark ridge somewhere. Don't you think that's wonderful? To be able to do that to not just a few hundred people but ultimately to tens of thousands of them. A trees are large and sophisticated organisms and we've learned a lot about their structure and their physiology. And we understand that they have wonderful integrative systems and wonderful defence mechanisms. I really enjoyed the talk yesterday on trichoderma from uh, Francis Schwarzer because you saw there a, an element of this defence mechanism and the sophistication of it to have an endosymbiont, okay, that's part of the tree's defence Just absolutely mind-blowing. Who would have thought of that? a mere 10 years ago, and now we're actually starting to breed for it and select specialist strains of trichoderma because we understand that these arboricultural natural defence mechanisms are the best defence, the best tools that we've got, and if we understand how to use them, the future is entirely different. Stressed and aged trees have a reduced capacity for defence and so are prone to attack by pests and diseases. So some of the things that you get away with with young trees you simply don't get away with healthy, vigorous trees. I remember Alex Shigo saying to me a couple of times that uh, what's the minimum size? We're discussing the minimum size that you should be applying the BBR and collar rules to in removing a branch. And he used to say two inches, two inches, 50 millimetres. And I've always taught 20 millimetres, basically because of my experience with eucalypts. If you start breaking the rules with even branches as small as 20 millimetres, you can sometimes pay a, very, pay a very significant price. And I just love the fact that there's that variability. Uh, you don't exactly know how the system is going to work. You know that because you're a biologist, you, biologist, you never say always. You've always got to hedge your bets because you're not quite sure. And we, of course, know now that you would never do that sort of thing. Well. You might, but you shouldn't live to tell the tale. 
And then we've got the prevention is better than cure model. Um, by the way, do you know, there's a, a horticultural adage that goes back for a couple of hundred years that's, that's quite widespread in general horticulture, and it was healthy trees don't get sick. Healthy plants don't get sick. And that, that's just what that's saying, isn't it? If you've provided the right conditions for the tree so that it maintains the best biology, the best physiology that it can, then it'll probably be able to look after itself and it won't get sick. Such a simple thing. And yet, in the 30 years that I've been dealing with uh, governments and, and uh, instrumentalities, the idea that you would make sure that you provided the conditions for the tree to be healthy very rarely happened. Very rarely happened. And then a non or minimal uh, interventionist approach. Um, don't do anything that you don't consider to be necessary and you don't know the outcomes of. Um, one of the things that I talk to the general public about, and, and it's amazing how this has an effect, I basically say to them, if you don't know what you're doing, leave the tree alone. And I'd love to say that to some professionals, by the way. If you don't know what you're doing, leave the thing alone, because it'll be better off. Another group of students that I work with looked at 300 mature trees in the city of Melbourne. And the conclusions we drew at the end of this study, and it's quite a detailed study, was if the tree was planted in the right place so that no arborist had worked on its canopy and no utility had cut through its root systems, it was a healthy, vigorous tree. Conclusion? trees left alone were the healthiest after 150 years. Um, you might like to think about that and how it reflects on some of the things that we do. Uh, don't reflect too long and too deeply though because it might depress you. Um, and finally, any interventions that you do must be done in such a way that you don't actually spread disease. And this is a, a principle that I taught for many years in relation to uh, plant hygiene and Phytophthora cinnamomai. And then I figured that the message was out there and I dropped this principle, discuss it briefly but didn't have it formally. And then of course some of you here from Sydney will know why it went back. It was the fusarium and your palm trees and I thought, my goodness, I've been in this game too long, I'm starting to repeat myself but at a 20 year cycle. It's a bit scary really. Now formative pruning, um, I want to say a couple of things about formative pruning. Uh, first and foremost, um, over the years, I've, I've discovered that arborists, but particularly the practical arborists, have healthy egos. Have you discovered that? And I like that. I mean, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be comfortable in your own skin and you've got to be comfortable about what you do. But what I've found, and Cameron hasn't got this data um, because it's not his field of interest, but what I've discovered is that there is a relationship between formative pruning and ego in arborists. The bigger the ego, the less likely you are to do formative pruning, okay? Because it doesn't involve chainsaws. It doesn't involve ropes and harnesses. And you're not out there performing to the audience of the general public. Um, but that's a study for another day. Formative pruning is consistent with all of the biological principles that I've just enunciated. It's really good arboricultural practices. It removes branches early, thereby reducing wound size and reducing the time taken to grow over. So all in all, as soon as you start talking about formative pruning, you have a consistency with good biological practice and very good arboricultural uh, 
practices and principles. It's part of the holistic approach to tree management. And one of the things that I have to say is whilst formative pruning has long been advocated, it's very rarely practised. And we have done some work on this. I've asked many, many utilities how much of their arboricultural um, budget goes on formative pruning. And for most of them, there is no budget whatsoever for this branch. Now, it doesn't say it's not happening. There's no separate budget for formative pruning. And the definition of formative pruning that we used, as you can see here, is the selective removal of stems and branches early in a tree's life to create a safer, stronger and more aesthetic structure. That's what we're about, getting in early so that the problems that might develop later on can be avoided. And it's also about breaking the cycle of constant faults and remedies. Now, the trees that were looked at in this study are commonly planted street trees. And at this stage, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Cameron, and he's going to take us through the method and the results. Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, what, we, uh, what we were looking at doing was um, trying to quantify what it costs to actually formatively prune a tree and obviously for me it was in southeastern Australia. Um, it's something that it was a, a big bugbear of Greg's and it has been for many years and uh, unfortunately I was the sucker that got sucked into it. Uh, it involved me walking around lots of streets. Um, I think it was in the middle of winter too so the weather wasn't that great and, uh, and looking at lots of trees and recording lots and lots of data. Most of the data that you see today, um, or sorry, most of the data that we collected you won't see today. Uh, it's just a few of the bits and pieces that, that tries to uh, detail what we actually did and, uh, and, and how relevant it is to, um, to today and, uh, and arboriculture. So we picked five different species and, and we've gone with five species that are most, um, most probably most commonly planted in, in Melbourne other than possibly Lofosterman. Um, but we've also got a mix of origins across the world. So we've got trees from Australia, Europe, Asia and North America. Um, so hopefully it gives context uh, pretty much worldwide. So the comparison um, between uh, pruning costs of, 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 of large trees and, and formative pruning costs really haven't been done. Um, plenty of people know how much it costs to prune large trees for utilities um, and, and all those sorts of things and correctional pruning and tree removal. But uh, everyone just assumed that the formative, formative pruning just, you know, we don't have the budget for it, we'll wait till later and we'll wait to see what happens with the trees and hopefully they'll be fine. Um, we wanted to know that if, or wanted to ask that question, if formative pruning is done in the early stages of life, um, how much money can we effectively save and hopefully, hopefully be able to redirect budgets um, in the council to, to other areas. Um, and so what we, uh, we also were able to get some data from uh, large pruning jobs on trees that hadn't been touched for 20 years and we were able to compare that, that data. Hopefully, um, this, 
this data and um, if, there's, if there's any more like it, we'll be able to use it to, to give formative pruning a higher priority. Uh, and I guess it's, we're really aiming this at the, uh, at the um, large tree managers and in, in Victoria particularly, it's the councils. Um, I think in, in places like the UK, there's also larger states that own large tree populations. Uh, and things like that uh, are also applicable. Um, but I know from, from my perspective, we're, we were really looking at street trees and we were looking at councils and how much, uh, how much money they effectively are spending on, on big pruning and how much money they're spending on formative pruning. And hopefully we can move that system so that we've got a, a proactive formative pruning budget and rem remove that reactionary budget that's going around sort of chasing your tail, structurally pruning trees and fixing them up as they fail. So the method, what did I actually do? Uh, as I said, I, I, we went and collected a lot of data. Um, we, we collected a lot of the standard sort of data on tree health and tree structure. Um, and these things were all based on, on visual ranking scale. So we had you know, very, uh, very good, good, fair, poor structure. Um, and health and form, and we had very defined definitions for all those sorts of things. Um, the things that we could quantify were, were, were obviously height, um, and we, we measured all those sorts of things. But as part of the visual assessment of each tree, what we aimed to do was uh, look at how many cuts did I have to make if I'm the arborist doing the formative pruning with a pair of secateurs, a handsaw, and a pole pruner. Um, and so the pole pruner, we were, we were working on it being a non-powered pole pruner, so you could either have secateurs or a handsaw attachment. Um, each each pruning activity um, we allocated a time to and we developed time trials for that and hopefully we were able to come up with uh, a, effectively uh, a time on how long it takes to formatively prune a young tree. We also measured the trunk caliper. Um, the, the location of the tree and any other particular comments. So there, was, there were a few that had just been completely topped and we, we made some comments on those and removed that from the data because it sort of really didn't fit with the, the model we were working to. Um, I don't know if you noticed the, the picture on the very, very first page, um, but that was a, a fairly nice and very healthy Carimbia citriodora. However, it had codominant stems and it had completely split apart. One of them was missing and the, the remaining stem was sort of just hanging off to one side. So that sort of a tree was really had to be removed. It had gone past its, uh, its use-by date, and we we're hoping that formative pruning would have been able to pick that up at an earlier stage in the tree's life. Uh, I hope you can see that data. I think that's big enough um, by the time it's on a screen of that size. Um, and with this one, uh, which one's my button? Oh, there we go. Um, you can see we ended up with an average height for a tree of 4.3 metres. So we were looking at, um, we looked at smaller trees, but we looked at trees up to about six metres in height. So something you could do with a pole pruner, a handsaw and secateurs. Um, and, and we figured uh, around about six metres was as high as you could go. And so our average ended up being about four metres in height and a, a trunk caliper of about 100 millimetres. So, They'd been, they were trees that usually, I think, had been in the ground for them between two and seven or eight years um, down in Melbourne. Interestingly, was, I thought, was this one. The pole pruner was usually required the most. Um, and I know it's based on trees that are this height, but I often thought there'd be a lot more pr pruning faults, or faults to be pruned, sorry, um, 
lower down in the tree. Um, the other one, or I guess the other two I'd like to sort of point out here is the presence of codominant stems and the presence of codominant stems with included bark. Now I don't have the data on how many trees had both, but you can see they were probably the two, or they are the two uh, most uh, common faults that we recorded. Uh, and as, as Nelda was talking in her, in her talk this morning um, with Brian Kane's work, this is a really weak attachment and it's a really common thing to actually fail. Um, it, I think it, Brian's uh, work showed it was approximately half of the normal uh, pulling force to actually rip uh, a codominant stem with included bark. So this is something that, that just kept popping up time and time again. And, uh, and I think that's probably one of, the, one of the big things to take out of this. Um, just to show the trees were more mostly in good health, I think uh, one of the, the things to see is that the dead wood in the trees was very, very low. And you'd expect that for small, young, semi-mature trees, but we generally had good, healthy trees that had virtually no dead wood. Now, I, I apologise if you can't quite see all of that. Um, I know there's a lot of data there. But uh, this is the breakdown across all five species. Um, and getting back to the Citriodora on the front page, on average, there was only one pruning cut to make per Citriodora. It was by far the species that had the least number of faults, but most of the time, the faults were codominant stems with included bark. Um, as everyone in here knows, formatively pruning that out is remarkably easy, and you should have a tree that will be perfect for the next 50, 60, or 100 years. Um, as we move sort of up the scale from, and this wasn't deliberately done, these are actually done in, uh, in alphabetical order, but as we move up the scale here, we get to Almus parvifolia. And we had codominant stems in 92% of the trees. And for those of you who know Almus parvifolia, they're a very widespreading multi-stem tree. And for the trees that we looked at that we tried to make sure hadn't been formatively pruned or noticeably pruned, this seemed to be a really, really big problem. Um, I think the vast majority of these trees could be remedied. Um, and I don't think it was a major problem, but if, they're not, if they weren't pruned in another 10 or 15 years, most of those trees won't be in the landscape. Um, and so I think even though these guys, it's the, they were the best formed trees and had the, the highest number with no faults, still the highest number of faults was codominant stems with included bark across the whole board. Um, Things like the low branching, rubbing branches, broken branches, broken stems and epicormic shoots, they were all fairly minor and, and I don't think many of those uh, really figured into the data that much. So how long does it take to prune a branch? Um, has anyone ever timed that? No? No. I did. <laughs> so, so we found a couple of trees that I could completely destroy by pruning bits and pieces off them. And I just ran repetitions and set the clock, walked up to the tree, pruned the branch with a pair of secateurs, put it on the ground, stopped the clock. We did that 10 times and came up with an average time to prune a branch with a pair of secateurs at eight seconds. Now this, um, we, we fitted a regression line to this and found the, uh, a, a very, very nice fit. And I think there was an R squared value of about 0.8 or 0.9. So this, this has an implication 
if you know that the branches are smaller, the time taken to prune them is going to be smaller. So if you're not waiting till the trees are really, really, really large, you know that you will be spending less time and hopefully it'll cost you even less. So we did the same thing for the handsaw and we ended up, we, we did branches from 20 to 90 millimetres. Um, we figured that with a pair of secateurs, you couldn't really prune easily and repetitively more than about 20 millimetres because you're just going to end up with RSI in your hand. So we moved up to uh, a handsaw above 20, 25 millimetres and we repeated that project 26 times. That was fun. So we did, uh, it was a single cut for anything up to 40 millimetres and then on greater than 40 millimetres because you end up with a larger branch. So we didn't rip any of the branches. We did the three-step cut uh, and made sure that the, prune, the final cut was uh, outside the, the branch collar to the you know, in accordance with the um, branch bark ridge. The pole pruner, oh, sorry, the, um, this one, again, we had a, a really nice linear relationship uh, and it was a similar R squared value. The pole pruner, however, was completely different. Um, we had a couple of different compounding uh, or confounding factors, uh, sorry. Um, and one was height. The higher the tree, the, the, the fault in the tree that you're trying to prune, the harder it becomes because the, the pole prune is wobbling around and everything's moving. You're trying to get a nice cut and it became really, really quite difficult. Um, and obviously as you get further down, you probably start using the handsaw because you're looking at larger branches. We really found that there was virtually no uh, correlation with, uh, with time and branch size or anything to that effect in that data, but it still came out at around about 26 seconds on average uh, doing a pole pruning trial of 25 repetitions. And the final one was how long does it take to walk between trees? And yes, we did trials and I walked between trees down streets. So that was fun. Um, it, walking between one tree was, was just seemed, um, seemed a little bit silly. So what we did was set up a piece, of, a section of the street and walk between 10 trees in the street and then obviously divided it back. And we did that twice and came up with an average of six seconds to walk from tree to tree. So based on the data that you saw a couple of tables ago on how many pruning cuts it takes and how many faults are in the trees, we had a look at uh, we applied it to the species and the average data for the species. So if I take uh, Pyrus caloriana for an example, it was eight seconds to prune a branch with a pair of secateurs and there was a, on average one and a half prunes per Pyrus with a pair of secateurs. So that comes out at around about 12 seconds. Um, it was approximately two prunes with the handsaw and approximately two prunes with the pole pruner, which gave us 145 seconds. Now the, the one bit in here I haven't explained is the inspection time. Uh, we did a trial for everything and we, um, we did a bit of a trial and, and um, decided that, and the data's not shown, um, that 30 seconds would be approximate appropriate time to inspect a tree. And so obviously when you've got small trees it's going to take you a couple of seconds. When you've got big trees you might be there for a minute or so actually working out what you're going to prune and how you want the tree to look. So ultimately we ended up with a travel and inspection time of 36 seconds and that was just added to every single tree because we had to do the walk and the inspection. Which in the case of Pyrus caloriana gives us a total time on average for the species and the sample assessed 
of 145 seconds, which is just over two minutes. We've then converted it here to a, an hour's time. So how, how many hours does it take us to actually uh, prune those trees? And the reason for that is coming up. We wanted to compare it to common uh, labour market values. So this data is a couple of years old and these prices have gone up a couple of, uh, a few percent here and there, but I think it's still fairly relevant. Um, we consulted to uh, arboricultural companies in Victoria and just got their hourly rates for, for an arborist um, without a truck, without a chipper, with any of that sort of stuff. So we ended up with an average, um, an average hourly rate of 68 uh, dollars per hour to prune, uh, to formatively prune trees. The final step in the, I guess, in the, uh, in the equation is, by, is calculating these total times by the hourly rate and it gives us our, how long and how much does it cost to formatively prune these trees. Now this is for a, this average here is for a sample set of 350 trees, um, but as you saw in the first data, Crimbia citriodora had by far the fewest faults, uh, and it's also by far the cheapest, because chances are you'd be walking down the street of these and you'd make one pruning cut per tree. And if you think of the hourly rate, you could do 50 or 60 trees an hour without too much problem. Um, I guess some of the limitations of this data is we didn't contemplate and didn't try and calculate how much it costs to remove the waste. Uh, it was specifically to getting it onto the floor into a pile so that a, a ute could come along and pick it up or a small truck and chip or things like that. Uh, it was also because we thought they might uh, integrate something like this with uh, a mulching program, an irrigation program. There could be all sorts of ways that it could be done and you might achieve further economy. So we stuck purely to how much does it just cost to formatively prune the tree. Um, this is just, the, just showing an extra table showing the 95% confidence intervals uh, and you can see that really even at the, the higher end we're still only getting to approximately $4.50 a tree as an absolute maximum. Now those numbers are fine but really what does it mean in terms of um, the, the council budget for reactionary maintenance and structural pruning and, and working on large trees. Um, so we were able to obtain some data from a uh, Metropolitan Melbourne Council where they pruned 37 eucalypts for the first time in 20 years. They'd never been touched. And it cost them on average $44.59 per tree. Um, now, when you compare that to a couple of dollars, that's, that's pretty expensive and I reckon most of those faults would be able to have been fixed with formative pruning. But that's $44 in today's terms and $3 in today's terms. So we had to extrapolate it out. Um, and assuming a, a 3 to 5% inflation rate, in 20 years' time, the $4 you've spent today to formatively prune that tree is saving you somewhere between, or is, is in comparison, $80 to $110. Um, now, I'm also aware that there's always going to be some pruning to be done, but we would hope that this could eliminate a quite a bit. Now most of the time, uh, and most of the texts, don't recommend one formative pruning. So we thought, if you've got good trees at the start, and 
they've been growing well. We don't need to formatively prune them once they've been planted. They'll go in, they're good stock and they'll grow. At approximately year four, we give them one pruning cycle. And again, with the three, three to 5% inflation rates, our averages move up to just over $3. And then again, at around about year seven, and so our pruning rates have, have jumped up again. To do the two pruning cycles, uh, assuming that we've had good stock at planting, we're looking at around about $6.40 to $7 per tree in comparison to $80 to $110 per tree. Um, this is obviously based on, on being able to do whole streets at a time in new estates, new plantings, new um, so street renewals, those sorts of things. This is not sort of the kind of data that you'd be doing one tree in a street. And that is the equation we came up with. So the total time is eight seconds for a secateur cut, is 26, 25 seconds for the handsaw, and 26 seconds for the pole pruner, plus 36 seconds time uh, inspection and travel. Now, this, this sort of equation ha is the, has the ability to be modified for um, the particular council that the, you know, someone wants to actually assess. If you know your trees are smaller, you can pretty easily run these time trials in an afternoon and modify that to however you see fit. And if you know what you've got in your streets, when tendering and, and looking at documents and contracts, you can get a pretty good idea of what it should actually be costing and, and whether the, uh, the people who are putting in the prices are ripping you off. And at this stage, I'll pass it back to Greg and uh, he can wrap it up. Thank you, Cameron. You've, you did a splendid job then and you can see why I passed the baton to him. Uh, as soon as it got to method and results, uh, he knows what he's talking about. And so I thought he did a great job. Um, we're just going to wrap this up now and, and, and go through some of the, um, the, the discussion and the conclusions that we've reached. And you can see here, I think, that there is a strong need for formative pruning. Just the number of faults and the type of faults that uh, Cameron was able to uh, discover is important data in its own right. And for many of you, you'll find that very useful because it could be one of the factors that you use in selecting street trees in the future. Uh, Cameron's given us an insight into how those trees are going to grow and develop. And certainly some of them, uh, you're going to have to question if you're not going to prune them on a regular basis whether you should be actually using them in these streetscapes at all. Uh, of the 350-odd trees that were uh, looked at, uh, only 22% displayed no faults. Uh, in other words, 78% had something that needed doing. And that's a telling uh, piece of data. And yet, in most situations, no one will do anything with that 78%. They will be left there. Uh, faults varied in their numbers, as you saw, and they were related to the different species. Codominant stem is by far the most common fault. We should be worried about that, shouldn't we? Of all the faults that are likely to lead to real hazard and risk later on, these codominant stems are at the top of your list, and yet these are the most common fault that we find in these young street trees. Um, the problem, of course, is exacerbated if you've got... Um, included bark and quite a few of the trees had both included bark and codominant stems, about a third of the trees in fact. So the removal of those uh, codominant stems in these young trees should be a really high priority 
It's a very simple action. It can be done very quickly, and the benefits in the long term are enormous. We certainly don't want to see too many of this sort of thing, do we? All over the place, uh, this is the sort of reactionary pruning that results if you don't do the formative pruning. Might be interesting, spectacular, very expensive and very dangerous. Um, just as a matter of interesting, the pruning with secateurs over an acceptable range was, as Cameron said, virtually a linear relationship. The thicker the branch, the longer it took. Um, the smaller the branch, the less time it takes, and the regressions were very, very strong. Um, this, of course, allows you to plan with some certainty. So if you're actually preparing quotes, you can actually get out there and say, this is how long it will take, this is how much it's going to cost, and you can be very, very accurate in your estimates, which I think is really useful both for the person bidding for a tender and also for those evaluating the different tenders that they get. Um, now, there's a bit of code in there, and the code is, for those evaluating tenders, formative pruning is cheap. For those putting in tenders, there's a fair bit to be creamed off the top. So very often, when you get a quote for formative pruning, it is quite high, and now we've provided you with some tools for saying, are we being skimmed here, effectively? That's what that code is about. Um, if pruning is scheduled with an average branch size of 10, milli uh, 10 millimetres instead of 15, you reduce the pruning time. It's simple as that. And, and that really is quite significant over a large number of trees. Um, the 9 to 16 millimetre um, diameter for using a, a secateurs is, is perfectly reasonable. Um, below that, they're inconsequential. And of course, we were worried about um, musculoskeletal problems with arborists. So we're, we're, we've been conservative. Uh, now I know that lots of people, both professional and amateurs, like to use secateurs on much bigger branches than they should. But this is certainly telling you, if you want to maintain health, healthy workplace uh, practices, these sizes really do make a lot of sense. Now if we move on, um, you can see there that we've emphasised the importance of tenders once again. For using the pole pruner, um, this is something we didn't really contemplate at the start. We thought we would get a, a, a linear relationship again because we'd got a, a lovely relationship with the secateurs and with the pruning saw. Uh, and we found that the, the compounding factor of height is really quite significant there. Uh, and as Cameron said uh, from his experience, things are wobbling around, you're trying to line things up, and what should be relatively simple uh, perhaps isn't. Um, one of the corollaries to this, and I don't know whether there's anyone here who has influence in the, uh, the arboricultural um, equipment industry, but it would suggest that we probably need a better designed pole pruner. And whoever does it is probably going to make quite a bit of money. So there's a lesson, I think, to be taken out of that. Uh, the inspection time of 30 seconds, some of you might find that that's incredibly short. Um, but those of you that are experienced with this, uh, I've watched a number of people, uh, professional arborists, make these inspections and some of them have virtually completed the inspection by the time they get to the tree. Um, others take longer and so what might seem to be ridiculously short is in fact a realistic estimate and uh, Cameron's measured the walking time. Now the research shows that formative pruning is quick, easy, and inexpensive. It's suitable up for trees uh, to six metres in height, 
six and a half if you're really pushed. Uh, if you're one of the Kenyans or Adam Tom or some of our visitors from North America, eight metres easy uh, because it does depend on your height and arm reach. Uh, it's safe and ergonomically sound, uh, which we think is quite important. And look at the things you can resolve. Co-dominant stems, included bark, crossing and rubbing branches and low or obstructing branches. All problems that can lead to danger and real expense in future years. It's economically sound, as I think Cameron showed brilliantly, by comparing the costs today, the costs of pruning a 20-year-old tree, and then putting some inflationary costs for the next 20 years. And you see the sorts of money that you sh you're spending now compared to what you might be spending in 20 years. Why did we do that? Um, the answer is simple. Uh, yesterday when I was speaking, some of you might have considered that uh, I consider engineers to be villains. Uh, this is not true. Um, that's a slight exaggeration. And, um, but they're in, in there with the other villains. And the other... <laughs> Freudian slip, sorry. Uh, and, and amongst the other villains are accountants. Okay? Uh, and, and probably lawyers too, but I won't get too far into this. So you can take this to an accountant and say, have a look at this, and when you're allocating our budget, how about giving us something for formative pruning? Because look at these numbers and think what you'll be doing for your organisation in 20 years. In other words, go and make an accountant one of your allies rather than one of your enemies. A theme consistent with the previous talk in this room, by the way. Um, Formative pruning does require considerable arboricultural expertise. It's not something that should be done by anyone else other than a trained and certified arborist, and we make that quite clear. Um, my, many arboricultural uh, crews are dedicated to high-cost sort of arboricultural activities associated with mature trees and dealing with hazards. And what tends to happen is that those crews in many councils and many private businesses are reactionary based. There is a problem, there is an emergency, the call goes out. Now that's not what formative pruning is about. It's neglected for a whole range of reasons and the consequences of neglecting it of course is that you end up with formative pruning not being done. Structural deformities and poor branching structures develop in yet another generation of trees. Now for some of you, it might make good business sense. Don't formative prune, and there'll be a lifetime of work for every arboricultural business, every arb crew in the country. But on the other hand, here is another dimension to arboriculture that should be taken seriously. Here is another opportunity for a whole range of people who may not want to climb, who may not want to use chainsaws, but who have a great and deep interest in trees. Here is a whole range of careers for those sorts of people. And when we look around at many of the ISA sessions, you can't help but notice that very often there's an awful lot of guys and not a lot of women, okay? Now, formative pruning would be a great opportunity for a whole group of people, amongst them women, to get into our profession and to make a real difference uh, for the future. And of course, the, the maintenance regimes of mature trees continue to be reactionary and the cycle is perpetuated on and on and on again. We see formative pruning as being proactive as opposed to reactive 
and I think that really is very important. This concludes Gregory Moore and Cameron Ryder's discussion on the arboricultural and economic benefits of formative pruning. If you would like to learn more about pruning, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store and the online learning center, including the new online course, Training Young Trees and Pruning Cuts. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for the quiz is SA7901. Again, SA7901. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques, whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.